But turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, the very last few verses, what is called the Great Commission. I will intentionally end early so we can all take dads out for lunch. And I hope some of you will join us at McAllister's, which is just down the road here. And we'd love to see some of you there. But again, we're going to be looking at, uh, as we have here, the whole upside down kingdom. But in particular, looking at the very last part about the mission that Jesus gave to the disciples and ultimately to us as we are to go into the world and make disciples. Verses 16 and 17 say this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And so I want to kind of break that down for just a minute. And the first thing we see is that these, of course, are the last words of Jesus to the disciples. Matter of fact, this week I had an individual on radio who was talking about these out-of-body experiences. He's been studying this for years. He's got a new book coming out about deathbed encounters. And so if you've ever been at somebody's deathbed and they give you sort of the last words, or somebody's about ready to step down, whether it's a president of an organization, president of the United States, a CEO of a company, sometimes their last words are very significant. And here Jesus makes sure, and Matthew wants to make sure you know what Jesus' last words were to them when they were in Galilee. Of course, we also have in the other Gospels the ascension uh, that takes place later. But this is, of course, the uh, charge to these individuals. We know pretty much when this happens because Matthew, because he's always very detailed, talks about the fact that there were 11 disciples. So we know this precedes some of the things we're going to look at in a minute in the book of Acts because this is before they actually chose a disciple to be the 12th disciple, which is Matthias. So we know this is very early on after the resurrection of Jesus. And so this is certainly the case. He tells them that they are to go to Galilee because if you go back, especially if you look at the Gospel of Mark, he actually tells them that I will go, but you will come to me again. And so they go back to, if you will, their place of origin. Jesus picked most of his disciples when he was staying in Capernaum, when he was in the region of Galilee. And so he sends them back to that place once again where they were. And I think it's significant, as I put on the screen here, that he has them return to Galilee uh, for the Great Commission, because that's really where he called them to be disciples. There's a number of times where you see that there's kind of a complete loop. This week I was seeing somebody doing some commentary where he was pulling clips from uh, the chosen television program in which he was talking about Peter and pointed out something I hadn't noticed before. When it talks about Jesus actually cooking some fish in the charcoal fire right there by the Sea of Galilee, the word for fire and the charcoal fire is the same word of the fire that Peter warms himself in when he denies Jesus three times. So there's a sense in which you see some of these arcs continue. He's actually warming himself by the fire as Jesus is in the house of Caiaphas, and he denies Jesus, what, three times. So now, here they are at another charcoal fire, and he says, do you love me, what, three times, and kind of brings completion. And there's a sense in which that is taking place as well. Now, also it tells them that they are to go to a mountain, 
And we don't know which mountain it is, but I think most church tradition is held to the fact that it is quite likely that the mountain he sends them to is the Mount of Transfiguration, which is usually identified as Mount Tabor. Some put it as Mount Hermon, but I think it's probably there. And so that was the place where Jesus was transfigured. Remember when he takes just three of the disciples up to the mountain and he's transfigured and they see him in his glorified state. And if you think about this, in the Old Testament, there are times when the pre-incarnate Jesus, what's called, if you want to know a technical word, a theophany takes place. You have the sacrifice of Isaac, um, you have the burning bush, uh, the giving of the law, even Elijah's battle with the prophets of Baal. A lot of things happen on a mountain. Uh, by the way, Jared Stevens wrote a very good book on that subject, didn't he? Which we've talked about here before. And so here it is likely that Jesus appears to him, each one of them now, these 11 disciples, and he may have been transfigured once again. And so you see that it says there were some that worshipped him, but now we get to one of the more troubling verses. I've seen whole sermons based upon a misinterpretation of this verse. Because what does it say here? Some worshipped him, but some doubted. And there have been all sorts of sermons given over the years saying that even when people see Jesus in their glorified state, they still don't believe. Well, that may be the case, but I think there's a better answer to that. And as I dug into the commentaries, there are really two different Greek words that are used for doubted. This one is distazo, which can mean doubt, but it also can mean hesitated. And I think it's probably just as likely that what happens is, just imagine if you were shocked and you don't know what to do. You've seen Jesus now. And this, for maybe a few of the disciples, uh, was pretty shocking. You may have seen him in uh, Jerusalem, in his, in, at least in his resurrected state. But now he might even be in his, uh, if you will, transfigured state. And so they hesitated. And not necessarily saying they doubted, they just didn't know how to process it. You know, if Jesus just shows up right now in the uh, chapel, what's your reaction? What in the world? I mean, that would be the reaction, right? You would kind of hesitate. I'm I'm supposed to, what am I supposed to do? I mean, and so I think that's probably a better uh, interpretation of that. You can have whole seminary discussions about this, but I've always thought that there had been some people that taking the English translations of doubted, taking it, I think, in the wrong direction. It's just quite possible, like any of us who ever would have seen Jesus in the transfigured state, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. And so in that respect, they hesitated. But nevertheless, they certainly, because of that, eventually we have, I think, the record here that they did fall down and worship. Even if they had some doubts or hesitations, even though they didn't quite understand exactly what was taking place, because now Jesus is to deliver the last kind of parting words. And I think it's a good illustration of what will happen someday in the future. We um, actually heard today during the worship service, you know, that we, with the name of Jesus, in heaven, on earth, and even below heaven, will what? will worship him, will actually fall down and worship him. We see this in the old passage in Ezekiel. And I thought that Connor Bales did a great job of quoting from some of those passages in Ezekiel. We see this in the future in the book of Revelation. And so if you ever encounter Jesus, guess what? You're down. 
I mean, that is just a natural reaction, as we talked about last week, even when you see sometimes an angel, but certainly when you see Jesus in his transfigured state, which I suspect is probably what happened here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, this gets us back to the passage that was quoted today in the worship service, Philippians 2, uh, verses 10 and 11. We didn't plan this, by the way. When I hear that, I'm going, oh, perfect correlation here. That had to be done by the Holy Spirit, because I didn't have that plan. And that is, again, the Bible promises that in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth, all will someday, what? Bow before Jesus. Even those who have rejected him will not be able to stand before this transfigured image of Jesus as well. So, a perfect correlation with the worship service, so that works very well. And then, of course, when we see Jesus in all his heavenly glory, worship really will be the only reaction for those of us that follow him. So that's kind of a quick background to those passages, but let's now continue, starting in verse 18. Now Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I'll get the last part in just a minute. And so now this is the great commission which is given to those disciples, but also given to us today as followers. And so he's really calling for all of us to actually be evangelists. Now, we live in a world today where we have such kind of professional Christianity that when I say, well, you're supposed to be an evangelist, the first thing that goes to your mind is, okay, evangelist, that's Billy Graham. That's Greg Laurie. That's not me. Okay, those are, those are the professional evangelists. But here, the emphasis here is really to go and make disciples. And so it's the mission he gives to all of 11 of those disciples It's the mission he gives to us as well. This is not just the first generation of disciples. It's for every one of us as well. And when we talk about evangelist, I won't get into the Greek word, but it really just means good news. So when you are an evangelist, you are simply someone who tells other people the good news about Jesus. So we shouldn't always put it in this hierarchy and say, well, okay, we have some people that are evangelists. Pastor Graham certainly seems to have the gift of evangelism. Uh, Shane Pruitt, who is the actual office of evangelist in the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, okay, he's the evangelist. No, we're an evangelist too, because we are witnesses. And I'll talk more about that in just a minute. And so all of us who are disciples of Jesus should be evangelists for him in our everyday world, wherever God has placed us. Certainly, if you're a missionary and you're sent to another country, you're an evangelist. But you can be an evangelist to your next-door neighbor, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. And that's really what is being communicated there. Now, it's kind of interesting because, again, I don't want to get into some of the Greek. But what is interesting is the Great Commission, we see it in the English a little different than the way it may have been heard. Because for us... The word that seems to be the imperative is the word go. Again, if my English teacher were in the room right now, she'd say, I think this guy actually learned something. Because the imperative is not go. The imperative actually is make disciples. So make disciples is the imperative. The words go, teach, baptize are all participles which mean that they describe when and how we are to do that. So the emphasis here is make disciples. 
And so that is, I think, again, just a very key aspect of the Great Commission. Oftentimes we're real good at going and sharing, but ultimately the responsibility was to make disciples. So discipleship is a very important aspect of Great Commission work, and oftentimes we emphasize the evangelism part, what we call sharing the gospel, and not the discipleship part, which is also really the imperative that is there there. Okay, enough English grammar. But nevertheless, just thought it would be kind of interesting to say that. One more point. Again, these are the last words of Jesus. Last word of the great leader to his successors. It's the final charge that comes as the Great Commission, because it was not just a Great Commission to the first disciples, it's a Great Commission to us today. And then finally, it talks about going into the world and taking the good news with us. If you're taking some notes, I put down Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. But here, as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, he asks a very good question. How will these individuals that have not heard the good news know the good news unless we take the good news to them? In the early days, one of the things that kind of ushered the disciples out of Jerusalem was persecution. There would have been a tendency maybe for them to kind of say, just like we would like to say in our holy huddles, this is where Christianity began, this is where the resurrection took place, we'll stay in Jerusalem, okay, maybe we'll go to Galilee, because that's where Jesus was as well. But we're not going to go any further, but persecution kind of drove them out, and the Apostle Paul now establishes a principle that we are to take the good news everywhere. And so we begin to hear the stories uh, mostly through church history. They're not recorded in Scripture, so oftentimes some of these traditions get manipulated a little bit. But I mentioned last week the book by Sean McDowell talking about where these disciples ultimately were martyred. And the evidence is, is Thomas makes his way all the way to what we would call India. Matter of fact, if you go and speak in Indian churches, we for a long time at Probe Ministries had an Indian intern and he got me into all sorts of Indian churches. And there are quite a few of them around here in Dallas. And I cannot tell you the number of men in Indian churches whose names are Thomas. <laughs> it's kind of fun. We talked about where Andrew went. We've talked, of course, um, the idea that Peter probably was executed in Rome, crucified upside down. But you begin to realize, as you just follow the lives of some of the disciples, they were literally going and taking the good news everywhere. And that's what Paul was saying. How would these people know the good news if we don't bring the good news to them? So the idea is we need to go into the world. And whatever that world is for you, some of that might be overseas, but for most of us, it's right here at home. But we are evangelists right in our own community as well. And so finally, just real quickly, we'll talk about the last verse here, because he's talked about, again, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A final promise here as well, that even as we go out into the world, Jesus is there. Perfect correlation with uh, the message today by Connor Bales. Jesus, or God the Father he was talking about, is always watching. He's watching you in the successes, even in your failures. And here, this is once again a great promise now, we take that for granted, but imagine that you have traveled with Jesus for three years. Then the incredible shock that Jesus is no longer alive, he's been killed, 
And then the shock again of the fact that he is alive. Oh, okay, now he's back again, because I'm not sure we can do it on our own. And then now they're going to be told that I am going to leave you. And they're going, how are we going to do this? Well, I'm leaving so the Holy Spirit will come and live within you. So they're kind of wondering by this point, how are we going to accomplish all this? We weren't exactly really effective sometimes when Jesus was around. Jesus sent out some of the disciples and come back with some pretty sad stories sometimes of how they weren't very effective. There were times when they doubted whether or not a miracle could actually have taken place. And so they're really beginning to wonder now if Jesus is going to be leaving us and he's going to go back to the Father, how's this going to happen? And because he's the one been doing the miracles, they've been pretty much watching all of this taking place. And of course, he's promised that then this will happen because even though I leave, the Holy Spirit will come with you. And so now we see that uh, this actually transforms them. We are talking about pretty ordinary people. We're talking about fishermen, talking about tax collectors. There's some indication some of them could have been farmers. But these are just ordinary folks. These are not individuals that studied with rabbis. These are not individuals that uh, spent time teaching in the synagogues. These were ordinary people. And then Pentecost comes, and what happens? Peter is preaching on the steps of the temple because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now, in the beginning of the book of Acts, which we looked at uh, many months ago, notice when the people saw the boldness of Peter... And John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished because the power of the Holy Spirit now that has descended upon them helped them to be so successful and recognize that they had actually been with Jesus. And so, of course, he had promised them that uh, when he would go away to the Father, he would send the Holy Spirit to guide them, to teach them, to lead them and give them power. But again, you can see some of the emphasis here is how it transformed just ordinary folks, just plain folks into the powerful people that they were. And again, they would have the advantage because now the Spirit came to live within them. They would have full access to God's Spirit, which they never had up until that point in time. They would have now supernatural wisdom, tells us that in 1 Corinthians 2. They would have power, we see that in Acts 1-8, which I'll come back to in just a minute. It would give them new life, give them a new creation, they would give them spiritual fruit, and they would now actually surprise themselves on how effective they had actually become. And so at the very end here we see of the book, uh, we see something very different because now we're moving from the end of Matthew chapter 28 to actually Acts 1. I put that in the handout there because we'll look at that in just a minute. And as we go to Acts, especially Acts 1-8, there are at least two things that Jesus told the disciples of how they would fulfill the Great Commission. The first one was this. They would fulfill the Great Commission through what? The power of the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly enough, if you follow the book of Acts, when the Spirit said go, they went. And when the Spirit said stop, they stopped. 
The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts talks about we were going to go, but instead we were actually receiving what today we call the Macedonian call. And we were going to go in that direction, but now we're going to go in this direction. And so the Spirit empowers them to do all sorts of mighty things. And all through the book of Acts, you have Luke giving us a record of what is actually taking place when these ordinary men now have almost miraculous power that they are using. Most of the time, of course, we refer to the book of Acts as the Acts of the Apostles. But at least one or two theologians have said you could also call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because really the book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit working through ordinary men and women to advance the gospel. Powerful. Number two, in addition to through the Holy Spirit, also number two, by being witnesses. You don't have to tell the whole story. What God has called for us to do and what Jesus is calling for us to do is simply be a witness. I've been in a couple of jury trials, and lots of times we call witnesses. Do we expect the witness to know everything? No, the witness just knows the part that he or she experienced in that particular trial. By the way, I just found out the other day, we're having trouble pulling together trials here. This is kind of a post-COVID situation. My son-in-law is a lawyer. Uh, The other day in Dallas, they called 500 people to come in for jury. Only 44 showed up. (laughs) And the ones that showed up are almost old white men. (laughs) So you had some that were very liberal kind of people that they have their vaccination and um, you knew that one side of the jury, we didn't want those. And then you had some others that we're never going to get the vaccine and we're very conservative. And they finally said, this is not going to work. We have nothing even close to a representative jury trial right now. So they're having trouble even getting people to come back. I think that's more of a COVID excuse than a reason, but nevertheless, it just illustrates again what's going on right now. And so they're, they're postponing these trials again. So if any of you have a, a case before the, the docket right now, you are in trouble because it is still not back to normal. Matter of fact, they have some of the judges say they don't want to come in because of fear of COVID, even if they've been vaccinated. So this is getting to be a little too a convenient excuse, but nevertheless, back to witnesses. Um, when you're a witness, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to know the whole story. That's what he saying. You are a witness. What are you a witness to? A witness to how Jesus changed your life. Now, if you want to learn a little bit more about evangelism and apologetics, we can train you here at lots of great websites. But the point is, we are witnesses for Christ and simply need to tell people what we know, what we've seen, what we've heard, and what Jesus has done in our lives. I want to take the pressure down because that's what evangelism is. Here is my story and you can share it. Of course, if you can answer questions, all the better. But nevertheless, that's what the Great Commission is all about. And again, he said that you would be our witnesses. Now we're looking at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you will be, first of all, witnesses in Jerusalem, their city. Then in Judea, their nation. And then even in Samaria, where their enemies were. I'm thinking that the disciples probably would have gone to Jerusalem, might have gone to Judea, but they would have still avoided Samaria, even though Jesus had actually witnessed to people in Samaria. And this is what, again, the charge was. And, of course, through the book of Acts, we see them doing that. And in the same way, we can be witnesses to wherever God has called us. Wherever you are, you can have an opportunity to be a witness to what Christ has done in your life. Your witness, both in your words, in your life, and Holy Spirit can do the work of actually changing individuals. You witness in the power of the Holy Spirit 
leave the results to God. That's how we've always described it before. Like the disciples, we're to follow the Holy Spirit where he leads, to speak the truth boldly, and pray for God's intervention. And so that's really what the Great Commission is all about. And as we have now completed the entire Gospel of Matthew, now you are equipped to go and teach this anywhere you want to teach it. Uh, because we have covered all of the verses in all of the chapters. And just before we run out of time, I thought I would take uh, one very short moment to talk about this question. How important on this Father's Day are fathers to faith? And I think you could look at it a variety of different ways, but I thought I would do something that might surprise you. There was a book that came out a number of years ago by Dr. Paul Vitz. I've known him for a number of years. We published a book at Probe Ministries called Jesus, God, Ghost, or Guru. And one of the co-authors of that book was Paul Vitz. I was responding to the idea that when Jesus made these claims was maybe he just psychologically unbalanced. But he had also done some other work. And as a psychiatrist uh, who actually practiced in New York City, he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Faith of the Fatherless. He'd been reading some of the testimonies and the biographies and autobiographies of some of the atheists. And he found something very interesting that almost to a person... If the atheist had had a defective relationship with his earthly father, he also then denied the existence of a heavenly father. Very interesting. And, as we'll see in just a minute, also we can look the flip side of that. If they had a good relationship with their earthly father, a better attitude towards their heavenly father. Now, again, we recognize this as a general trend. Yes. Does that mean that if you're a single mom, your kids will end up being atheists? No. Or do we ever once in a while see that kids grow up in a really godly home and they still reject the gospel? Yes. So obviously we see exceptions to that. But it's very intriguing because what he did is looking at in the book, and I'm going to give just a very brief summary so we can get out to have some lunch for, with the dads, is that he found that when he looked at a dozen of some of the most influential atheists in the last two centuries, they all had at least one thing in common. They had a defective relationship with their fathers. Either their father was dead, abusive, weak, or had abandoned the children. So we're going to look at a few of those real quickly. And then he also then went back and studied the lives of very influential theists. Not all of them were Christians. And he found during that same historical period, most of them enjoyed, isn't that interesting, a strong, loving relationship with the father or, this is going to be key in a minute, a father substitute. Now, this is a general trend. We don't want to overplay it. But I thought for just a minute, are fathers important in a culture right now that says fathers are sort of absent? Fathers are kind of incidental. Fathers are not significant. It is kind of interesting to see how very much fathers do have an influence in the lives of their children. The first one I'll mention is Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche, of course, is uh, a very instrumental in Germany. Matter of fact, uh, in some respects, his philosophy very much influenced Adolf Hitler. He lost his father, who was a pastor, before his fifth birthday. The biographer at the time wrote that Nietzsche was passionately attached to his father, and the shock of losing his father was very profound. Dr. Witz actually said that Nietzsche had a strong intellectual macho reaction against a dead, very Christian father. And if you're not familiar, Nietzsche is the one that came up with the idea, God is dead. 
And at least he suggests, and I'm summarizing an entire chapter in his book, that it seems possible that the rejection of God in Christianity was from the rejection of the loss of his father, or even the weakness of his father. Another example, of course, would be Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud's father was Jewish by ethnic background, but then converted to Christianity, but not really a true Christianity. But it turns out that he was a very weak man. Freud later wrote two letters that his father was actually a sexual pervert and that his children suffered as a result of his perversion. Dr. Fitz points out that uh, Sigmund Freud's idea of an Oedipus complex might have been an expression of a strong unconscious hostility to and rejection of his own father. And his father was involved in a kind of, for a while, reformed Judaism, and then later sort of, quote, became Christian, but not sure there. But he was a weak, passive man with all sorts of perversions. And so he argues that Freud's rejection of God and Judaism, and then later Christianity, was in large part due to a rejection of his father. Perhaps one of the more famous atheists of the 20th century is a man by the name of Bertrand Russell, an uh, individual that uh, wrote books like Why I'm Not a Christian and all sorts of things. His father died when he was four years of age, and he was subsequently carried for, cared for by this really rigid grandmother who was known as Deadly Nightshade. So that gives you an idea how awful she was. And so he was raised by a string of nannies who he grew very attached to because it was the only kind of relationships he had. And when one left at 11 years of age, he was inconsolable and just went the other direction. And if you've ever read his kind of famous quote, he says, human relationships mean virtually nothing to me. I have more affection for the stars and for the rocks and the trees and the, and the world around me than I do for human beings. And frankly, I'm conscious that human affection is to me at the bottom of my attempt to escape from the vain search for God. Very sad stories of these individuals. Voltaire is another one from the French Enlightenment. Um, he actually uh, was so disliked his father, he changed his name to Voltaire. The two fought constantly, if you've ever read the stories of Voltaire. I've done some uh, radio programs on him as well. A father, as a matter of fact, was so angry with his son that he said that if he uh, actually pursued this career of letters rather than going to law, he actually authorized to get his son sent to prison or to exile in the West Indies. And so, again, just a very troubled relationship with the father of Voltaire, of course, of their strident critic of religion. Not true, true atheist in the one sense, because he was more kind of a deist, but certainly rejected the idea of any kind of personal God or personal relationship with God. And then if you go to Germany, you have Ludwig Furbach, who actually was growing up in a home of Germans who were fairly prominent. Uh, you would call them today, maybe we would call them evangelical Lutherans. But his father was a prominent jurist, but he was very harsh. He was undiplomatic. And the thing that mostly affected his life is his father had an affair. When his father had an affair, his father finally just rejected the family. And Ludwig Furbeck rejected Christianity. Furbeck also had an influence indirectly on people like Adolf Hitler. Matter of fact, one critic at the time said that uh, Furbeck was so hostile to Christianity that we would have recalled him and called him the Antichrist if um, the world had ended then. So here, in some respects, some of the most harsh critics of Christianity were those who grew up in the church. 
I learned that when I would speak on college campuses. Sometimes I'd have some students just angry about Christianity, and I would want to get together with them and try to explain what the gospel is. And they knew what the gospel is, but they grew up in church, and, you know, their dad ran off of the choir director, or they had all sorts of scandals, or their parents were abusive, and they actually tended to be some of the most angry people about Christianity. Okay, bad news. Any good news? Oh, yeah, we got quite a bit. Blaise Pascal, um, certainly an incredible individual, a famous mathematician, religious writer, lived at the time of Paris when there was so much skepticism during the French Enlightenment. But Blaise Pascal, interestingly enough, although he died relatively early, um, we collect those thoughts of his into what are called the pensées. And if you read that, it's really some of the most effective, uh, if you will, defense of Christianity. One of my former colleagues, Doug Grotice, used to be a probe staff, now is at Denver Seminary, did his doctoral dissertation on Blaise Pascal. And there is just a wealth of great kind of apologetic and theological information, even in his pensées. Where did that come from? Well, it turns out that Pascal's father was a very wealthy judge. He was also an able mathematician. He was oftentimes described as a man, a very good man with great religious convictions. But Pascal's mother died at the age of three. So what did his father do? He gave up his law practice and he homeschooled Blaise Pascal and his sisters and poured his life into him. And we are the beneficiary of some of the great writings of Blaise Pascal. Let's take another one. Let's go to England this time. Edmund Burke. We always remember Edmund Burke for what? The only thing for evil to triumph is what? For good men to do nothing, right? And Edmund Burke was one of these great British statesmen. He's kind of seen as the founder of modern conservative political thought. He was raised first by his grandfather, a number of uncles. He later wrote that his uncle Garrett was one of the best men, I believe, that ever lived, of the clearest integrity, the most genuine principles of religion and virtue. Probably the best-known book by Edmund Burke is The Reflections on the Revolution in France. Because he helped understand and helped us all understand there was a very definite difference between the American Revolution, which was based upon liberty and based upon uh, limited government, and the French Revolution, which was based on, quote, equality and ideas that actually led to the guillotine, and so has written that. But he is the one that has actually made very strong arguments that for us to have a just and honest Society, we need God and religion as the very foundations. And just one more, while I'm in England, how could we ignore William Wilberforce? William Wilberforce, English statesman, probably best known as the abolitionist, the man that ended the British slave trade. Now, interesting enough, here's a good illustration of this. His father died when he was nine years of age, so he was sent to live with his aunt and uncle. But in addition to being very close to his uncle, was also close to a man by the name of John Newton. Who's John Newton? John Newton was a former slave trader who converted to Christianity, later became a clergyman of sorts, and wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And actually, he said he first heard of the evils of slavery from Newton's stories and sermons. And he said, even reverencing him as a parent when he was a child. And so Wilberforce went to serve in the parliament and eventually was the reason for the abolition of the slave trade. 
So I just want you to see that have fathers in the past been very influential in the life of their children? I think I've given you a couple of examples. And if you find yourself saying, I'd like to read a little bit more about that. I did a whole week of radio programs on um, the book by Paul Vitz, The Faith of the Father Listening. Just go to probe.org. And if nothing else, I just wanted on this Father's Day to say, Fathers, you are very important. And when you look at history, look at the legacy that we have enjoyed because of those faithful fathers. Let's turn it back over to Parker. Parker.